This is Mission.org. Hello, marketers, and welcome to Marketing Trends. Zian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at The Mission. For today's episode, I interviewed Jale Bicharat. Jale is a CMO and marketing extraordinaire turned founder and CEO of Naked Poppy, a clean beauty startup. Formerly, she served as the CMO or VP of Marketing at companies like Amazon, OpenTable, Upwork, and Eventbrite. We went a little long, so in part one of this episode, we're going to be talking about the lessons she learned from working with Jeff Bezos, what it means to truly obsess over customers, and why she tried to keep OpenTable a secret rather than doing PR. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Trends. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Charlie, you are in studio here in Palo Alto, despite both of us being from the East Bay. So we made <laughs> made the trek. For those of you who don't know, who don't live in the Bay Area, it's uh, sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a trek from the East Bay here, here to sunny Palo Alto. But we're so happy to have you in studio and to be talking about all things marketing trends and your career, which has spanned some VIP type folks, some VIP companies. And we want to get into all of that and talk about finding the 20% that matters, which is something that we have a lot of lessons from your career that marketers will be able to apply in their own lives. So let's get into it. How did you kind of start this marketing journey of yours? Well, I graduated from Harvard Business School. I actually did poorly in marketing. <laughs> I had a very uh, uh, professor that had been in the Marines and he was very intimidating. But what I found was fundamentally, I moved out to the West Coast and started working for the Apple software subsidiary Claris. And what I found was that I loved this notion of taking something that mattered to me and making it matter to other people. And I found that I had a knack for it. So I never planned a career in marketing. I never planned to someday I wasn't one of these people who ever planned my career. I just did what I loved and everything followed. I love that. That's great. And that's a really good way of, of putting it. I always said that I got started in sales because, or my first job in sales was because it's about helping people, you know, help themselves. And I always thought that was so empowering, but marketing is, is the same thing. I mean, really, it is the exact same thing. Helping people see something that they don't know right. that they might want or might help them in some way or change their lives. Early in your career, you worked for a little guy by the name of Jeff for a little <laughs> company called Amazon.com. Let's do some story time about Jeff and working for him and some of the things that you kind of learned early on in your career that kind of shaped some of the things that you did later on. What's, what was your first kind of impression of working with him? Well, Jeff is a force of nature. I got to Amazon through acquisition in 1999. I will tell you, I was there actually for less than a full year. My husband was commuting back to the Bay and it did not, <laughs> it was not a way to raise little kids, yeah. but it was as if time slowed down. Meaning I learned so much at Amazon 
that it was worth five years of a career. And I really mean that. You know, to me, when I think about the fact that Amazon is such a big brand and such a big force today, nothing about that was an accident. It was such an, an intentional, well-run company with such a big vision and such an ability to invent and reinvent itself every day that it's not a surprise to me that other brands have come and gone and Amazon is stronger than ever. What was your role back then? So I was VP of marketing, early days. <laughs> and like, what was kind of the- And actually I came in through acquisition and got promoted to that role. What was kind of the day-to-day -day like? And what was, I mean, were you working, like how was it structured back then? And how were you kind of positioning, you know, the company back then, early days? Well, so every day was an adventure. And I will say one thing about Amazon that really stays with me is that while every day was an adventure, meaning that you learned from morning, noon till night, it was also very consistent. It wasn't that people would come in with the idea du jour and change it up and, you know, one from one fire drill to the next. It was actually pretty consistent. Interesting. I mean, and, you know, you asked about Jeff. He had this mind that could always see around corners. And that constantly thought about, how can I make the customer journey a better one on Amazon? So, you know, he'd come in in the morning saying, we got to reduce the number of clicks. We got to get, you know, that's how we got down to one click. We were constantly reducing clicks. So, you know, if you were to ask me, like, what are the big lessons I learned from Amazon? Is that, is that yeah. what you're getting at? So other people can take advantage of them. One would be to really, I mean, talk about a customer obsessed company everything began and ended with customers. <laughs> and, you know, the company really walked the walk. It didn't just talk the talk. So when from the very top of an organization, a culture is set that the customer is number one, it filters all the way down. The second one was around how to think about investing money. That was a company that was super frugal about everything that didn't matter and extremely willing to invest in everything that did matter. Interesting. So the DoorDesk story about building your own desk, yes, that's a true story. <laughs> you know, the annual reports that come looking like they're in brown paper bags as a cover, that's a true story. Wait, so what, tell, mm. tell me the Door, DoorDesk story for those who haven't heard it. You show up at Amazon and you build your own desk the way Jeff did the very day he started the company. And it really, you know, it was less actually about building the desk and more about communicating a culture to every new employee that we don't spend money on people to assemble your desks. Now we do invest in the customer. <laughs> we do make sure we have tons of inventory on hand. We do invest in great distribution centers, great software to make sure people are gonna get their products very quickly. Um, but we don't invest in things like fancy annual reports or hotels when you travel or et cetera. It is not a company of the subsidized lunch. But I think it, it, it's such an interesting way of looking at things, you know, from a from a CEO perspective, where there is limited resources at at, at times, and you need to invest those in the right way. How did you kind of look at that as a marketer? I mean, did you have kind of like were were you playing with you know budgets and things like that? I mean, he's notorious for investing in marketing. What were kind of some of those? things that you saw early on that you were like, oh man, this is the next big thing and we need to you know, make a huge bet or what type of bets was he thinking of making? First of all, the company was run as one large unit, so it wasn't only as a marketer, but 
anything that had to do with delighting the customer really always did come first. I mean, I can tell you a story about that holiday season. So this is the holidays of 1999. E-toys, you know, we were scared of them. <laughs> you probably don't even remember E-toys, but yeah. I do. It was a toy company that was threatening our toy business. And barnesandnoble.com, right? Yeah. Those were our competitors. And it was really, really important that we delight customers that holiday season. So first of all, we made sure we had tons of inventory on demand on hand. But secondly, you know, that holiday season, we would meet twice a day in a war room to make sure that everybody got their package. And are you familiar with this notion where if you don't you know, order by a certain date, you either have to pay upgraded shipping or you missed your deadline. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that date came and went and we made the decision, especially if it had a gift wrap on it, to upgrade at no cost. Wow, really? So we shocked and surprised people by upgrading at no cost and them getting their gifts on time. But probably the most interesting part of this whole story, and I'll never forget this, we all went down to the distribution centers, we all wrapped gifts, we all did whatever it took um, to get it out. Christmas Eve rolls around and various employees got on planes and out of their own accord took gifts with them and dropped them off and said knock knock merry christmas from amazon no now, kidding can you imagine in the age of twitter how that would have exploded yeah no kidding <laughs> and i can't say that that many incremental gifts were delivered but as a message to the team and to the employees and as a reflection of what the company stood for it was priceless that's so interesting. And it's and it's funny to me because I think there's so many leaders out there that don't walk the walk in that respect. Like I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, a message to Garcia or a red message to Garcia, but it's something that, you know, we talk about at this company. It's something you, sh you share a lot in the military and obviously having a background in the military in in our company at the mission, we've talked about. But it's like, are you actually going to do are you going to carry a message to Garcia? Are you going to take a literal package on a plane with you to make sure that it gets to someone because that person, it make or breaks their Christmas, right. you know, their son or daughter or their loved one mm -hmm. or whoever it is, like they're counting on that to, to be there. And it's not trivial. It's important to their lives. Right. And look at the, me, I'm talking about this 19 years later. Yeah. I mean, it left, a, it left a huge impression. So, uh, and you're right, you know, culture gets set at the very top of an organization. Whether you're the CEO or whether you're the CMO, head of marketing in this case, your team is going to reflect not only what you say, actually, that's the least of it. It's that you say it and then you do it. <laughs> what about failure? I mean, how did early on you learn things from Jeff and in that culture about failure and what is necessary when you do kind of, you know, get in that situation? Well, not only Amazon, but everywhere everywhere I've been, I would say there are only two ways you can actually really fail. One is if you don't learn something from it. And the second is if something doesn't work and you blame someone. And the reason for the second one, of course, is obvious, which is if there's a sense that someone's going to get blamed, everybody's afraid to try the next experiment. So it's not a failure if you've learned something even if that learning is, how can we learn less expensively next time? <laughs> like, what did we do that cost us so much to learn this lesson? But otherwise, there's no such thing as failure. I mean, failing is how you learn. How you, even when you raise children, when they fall down, that's how they learn how to get up and walk. Gosh, we had somebody on the other day that was 
uh, oh, Sean Shepard on the sales marketing alignment where he's talking about how, you know, a baby falls down. It's like whatever, a hundred thousand times or right. something. It's a ridiculously huge number. And it's like, imagine if they just never decided to get up. Um, <laughs> for marketers, I mean, I think that our job is about like failure. It's about running experiments. It's about, you know, having a, this is 100% of my budget. I know that there's going to be waste. I know that I'm going to overextend. I know I'm going to reach people that are not going to receive my message. So how do you, how do you kind of look at that? How did, how did Amazon look at that? And how did you look at that as a marketing leader there with those kind of like waste kind of metrics or percentage of budget spend or things like that? Well, I think the way to look at it is it's not a waste if you're learning from it and constantly tweaking it and making it most more efficient over time. That's number one. Number two, you do have to set aside a proportion of your budget that's considered testing and experimentation versus I know this works, we're just going to go for it and double down. So you make the tough decision to leave Amazon. Talk through that and what was this next opportunity on the horizon? Well, it was a really tough decision because it was a really fun company, but it was personal. We had moved to Seattle because Amazon had acquired my company. My husband was a law professor. Kids were little. He was commuting back to the Bay. It wasn't working from a raising children perspective. So I moved back to the Bay, to San Francisco, and joined the board of this little, hot little company at the time called Open Table. And when I say hot, actually what I mean was it had a lot of promise. It was in a really interesting area. It was a network effects business. The more diners you get, and the more restaurants you get, the more it would it would it had the potential to take off. But it was still really tiny. It was in the mission, and it was just getting going. And how did you find the opportunity? So one of the board members, his name is Bill Gurley. He oh, reached yeah. out. <laughs> so Bill's um, a f- super famous investor. For those who who don't know, he reached out, told me about this company, Open Table, and the next thing I knew, I was on the board. And then the next thing I knew, I went in to start coaching the marketing team. And that went on for seven years. Then I became the interim head of marketing. And then we lost the interim and I was there seven years. It was never full time. I just did went in every single week for for many hours and and helped coach the team. I think they actually really liked it because they got to spread their wings, but I was there when they needed it. (laughs) That's great. And you know, you've written about and talked about at length this like idea of the the 20% impact, you know, the drive 80% of the results, Pareto principle and all of that. Did, was this kind of, you know, early seedings for that, for that 20% impact and like really seeing the results of that at OpenTable? Yes. So here's my philosophy. And I've seen it time and time again. There is never a shortage of ideas. The shortage is always in excellence and execution. So the key is to come at it with a framework of what is the 20% that matters and to truly genuinely focus on that. And actually, I first learned to do that to do that at all <laughs> and to start to do it well after I had my first child. I'm telling you right now, there is nothing like working moms to, if you want to hire someone who can prioritize well, hire a working mom. Agreed. <laughs> because she learns to pack really you know, effective work into a much shorter day than she thought possible. 
before she had her child. Anyway, that happened to me. But, you know, there are a couple examples at OpenTable that are actually illustrative and I think made the difference. I think that's why we broke out from our competition. Because when I first got involved with a company, there were lots of little companies trying to do this reservation thing. Um, You haven't heard of them because they went by the wayside, but they were there. We got really filtered. And I'll give you just one or two examples if you'd like. Yeah. You know, um, so I do remember arriving and marketing was spraying. There's no other word for it, meaning there were lots and lots of things we were trying, spending money, you know, with guys at tuxedos, standing at subway stations, BART stations, handing out flyers, billboards, what have you. Well, the insight was that this is actually not the cure for cancer. Yeah. People aren't thinking about it all day. In fact, they're only thinking about restaurant reservations 10 minutes a week. So where are they during those 10 minutes a week? They are either on a restaurant website or on hold for a restaurant. That was back in the day when you called. Yeah. Or on Zagat or Chowhound. So we retrenched all of our diner acquisition to those channels. And it became extremely targeted and focused to that 10 minutes a week where they're in the mindset of where should I eat out tonight? And that's it. That's really interesting. So when you were looking at all of those different ways that they were spending. How was that being tracked? I mean, this is earlier than, you know, it's not not that long ago, but it's definitely a while. Early, yeah, yeah, but it's definitely <laughs> earlier than like the the metrics boom that we kind of have now, mm-hmm. especially with things like outdoor advertising and all of these sort of things. I mean, do you think that some of that helped with like brand awareness early on when you're introducing it? I mean, or or was it just that kind of uh that that 10 minute period where, you know, you needed yeah, to focus well, in. Well, you, you know, you talked earlier about waste and efficiency. So is brand awareness going to be efficient when you're on of a, a new restaurant, you know, reservation website, when you're on a restaurant's website or on Zagat? Is it going to sink in, you know, in an efficient way? Or when you're rushing to get to work and drop off your kid and totally. some guy at bar is standing with you. So you know, there's, <laughs> there's even with brand awareness, the key is to catch people in the correct frame of mind. You know, give the right message to the right person at the right time. Yeah, I mean, so if you're, you know, going to spend whatever it is, let's say, a large percentage of marketing budget on, you know, ads at, let's just say, like at Oracle Arena or something like that, a big sports venue or something like that, you're kind of like, you know, are, is anyone ordering food while they're sitting in Oracle Arena? No. So maybe I shouldn't do that. But let's say if you're debating something like putting in one of the Jersey ads, which mm-hmm. were like crazy expensive. I think Wishes was like, I don't know, it was a lot of money. But like when you go to watch a game, you actually might be like thinking of ordering some food while you watch the Warriors game or for whatever it is. So maybe you're starting to get a little bit more clever with that. I mean, how how were you looking at at brand versus like, you know, acquisition at that time? We were mostly thinking about how to acquire the right people and then to convert them into repeat customers. And actually, this was a big driver of the business because we used to get people saying, I use your service all the time. And we discovered they actually thought they were using it. They would use it to see what was available and then pick up the phone. You've got to remember, this was back in the day yeah. when people were used to picking up the phone. It's like Yelp. I mean, yeah, I mean, same sort of thing where it's like people look at you know, they, they look at stuff, but they don't click through, right? Totally. Right. So yeah. they think they're using it, but they're actually not really a 
converted customer. Totally. So that was another area where we really, you know, honed in on our customer research and discovered that in order to habituate a person to reserving online, they had to make at least three reservations. It was actually 2.7 or something on average. But yeah. So we started to spend a lot of effort getting them from their first to their third reservation. And we have this had this points program. There's still an open table points program where you can start to play with things like your loyalty points to get people to the number two and number three. And actually, you know, honestly, there's retained customers, as you know, <laughs> are the holy grail for most businesses and habituated customers. Talk about, you know, once a person started using OpenTable, they wouldn't go back and then they would tell their friends. And we actually developed this viral feature and I don't take credit for this one, but this whole thing about invite a friend, well, people would invite their friends and in the normal course of just going out to dinner and their friends would say, what is this thing? And then they'd sign up for OpenTable and try reserving online. Yeah, I think that's, uh, such a such a key insight to target repeat customers, and it it sounds difficult. I think a lot of times to say like, yeah, no, no kidding. Well, first we need to get the customer first before we get them as a repeat customer. But when you start thinking about what are the actions that they're going to continue taking over time, like why spend all the effort to get somebody that's not going to be you know a power user when you could say. Yeah, how do we incentivize every single person? We like if they're going to do it once, we're not interested. If they're going to do it three times, we're super interested. How do we incentivize that behavior? Right, and they become brand ambassadors for you too. Because once it becomes the way they do things, they start to tell each other or pull each other in. In this example, by inviting a friend and providing the parking and all those details, the friend friends would literally ask. I mean, I would use Open Table, and my friends would go, "You're very efficient." <laughs> You're doing all this online. Yeah, try it. One of the things that OpenTable didn't do was one of the best decisions. And you've talked about this uh, a little bit in the past, but for our listeners, you decided we're not going to do any PR. Why was that? Yeah. And I got to say, as a marketing person, it's a good thing our CEO was there. He came up with a strategy because it was it was against my DNA, oh, although yeah? he was right. <laughs> and here's the reason. OpenTable was a network effects business. And I think most of your listeners know what that is. But just in case, a network effects business is when you have a two-sided business where uh, people pull each other. So on Open Ta- in OpenTable's case, the more diners we got, the more the restaurants felt like they needed to get on our network. The more restaurants we had on the network, the more diners would do a search, find the restaurant they wanted, and get satisfaction from the experience. So we needed to build lots and lots of little networks by city as in order to win in the marketplace. And that's the other thing about network effects businesses is they tend to be winner take all. You know, everyone's on Facebook because all their friends are on it. If they prefer some other substitute that has better features, but their friends aren't on it, they're not going to join. So we made a decision at OpenTable that the last thing we wanted was to encourage a lot of competition to come in and try and build their networks city by city before we had it wrapped up. So, and we didn't even want investors (laughs) to notice that this was a great little business we were building. Yep. So we actually were built OpenTable under cover of darkness, a city at a time. And by the time anyone realized what a great business we had, we had set up our networks. You know, it's funny is like, 
that now you can look at the top like apps in the app store you can look at different things like that like there's ways that you can kind of stress test or or measure how good companies are doing a little bit better now there's a little bit more transparency but it's a really interesting insight for b2b marketers specifically because you can really do it under cover of darkness if you're building a business that way because there's just not you know i i think it's i think it's really interesting that we always want to like logo smash our website just like get as many new logos as we can on the website show as many case studies as many things as possible and there's potentially times where that's just not the best idea like having a case study for every single use case of your product seems like it's common sense but perhaps it might not be i mean what do you think about that well i think i mean Here's the challenge we here's how we articulate it to ourselves at OpenTable. If it speaks to a customer, we'll do it. But if it's for the industry, we won't. I love that. So actually we did do customer driven PR, meaning and it was a slog, you know. <laughs> but if, you know, if Restaurant Week wanted to run a story about OpenTable, we loved that. But if it was like, oh, I remember literally the Wall Street Journal called. But we knew who was going to read the Wall Street Journal. Yes, you get some customers, but mostly it's the industry and investors and potential competitors. So we were disciplined about focusing on customer-driven PR. It was way more work. And by the way, you know, anything worth doing is difficult. So we set ourselves a higher challenge, (laughs) which is to only do customer-focused PR. Yeah, I mean, if if you're advertising a an app that helps you get food faster to a bunch of venture capitalists or you know people reading WSJ versus a bunch of foodies it's mm-hmm. like why would you do the the former when you can just focus on the latter yeah although the latter is often more difficult of course yeah yeah, yeah. and there's a lot more competition right because it's <laughs> people that are actually right. you know vying for those especially with search now is you know th- those keywords are ridiculously competitive and that's why people do PR in the first place, because it's the quote unquote cheaper alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, you you kind of switch roles from there. And I, I don't want to just, you know, go through the laundry list of your entire career, but there's specific insights that you've written about, about customer insights, insights about insights, as they say, <laughs> uh, it's like inception about why you need to know your customer personally and can you share kind of some things about that and and why you think that this was these human driven insights are so important? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think with the advent of better and better measurement systems, we as marketers, it's very easy to become infatuated with analyzing how people behave. Where do they click when I, you know, when I change this button, (laughs) you know, conversion rates went up. And even if a story starts to emerge from it, that story starts to feel extremely compelling. But it's very hard to to remember sometimes that actually when you you really know your customer is when you can complete her sentences. That's where you want to be. So, you know, in my mind, like if you were to say, what's the definition of great marketing? It's really simple to me. Great marketing happens when a customer says to themselves, this company really understands me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like those moments where you're like, ah, oh, 
They solved a problem that I really care about. I remember the first time I used Uber and I saw that I could see where my car was and how close it was and you know the fact that it was actually coming. I thought, ah, oh, this is such a delight. This company understands me in that moment. So the way that you truly deeply understand a person, you have to talk to them. I, you know, I love this and I think getting beyond Sean Shepard, uh, two shout outs for Sean in this episode. Mm -hmm. Sean always says, and I don't know if it's his original line or not, but that the only people who call human beings users are drug dealers and uh, marketers. <laughs> um, that's pretty funny. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but I think that that's, it's a really valid point, specifically with regards to some of the metric driven stuff. You mentioned before 2.7 was the target metric. There is no human being who does 2.7 exactly. of anything. Right. Right. So you either do two bookings or you do three. Right. But there's there's not a 2.7. So we need to track that stuff. But there's a certain point where like these are human beings that we want to do something that's in their best interest or not do something if it's right. in their best interest. Right. Like we, we don't need to just blindly get metrics just to do it. Exactly. And you also want to be in a position where when you're building stuff, you actually have an image of this person in your mind because you talk to so many different people. You probably over-rotated and thought you talked to too many people that you genuinely understand what is motivating her action. Like you understand why she does what she does, not just what she does. So how do you do that? Like what are some of those human-driven insights that you've seen? Like, and, and how have you kind of measured that? And I don't necessarily think it's qualitative versus quantitative, mm -hmm. but, but potentially it could be. Yeah. So you want to do both. There's a place for both. I won't go into a whole long thing about market research, except to say this. You want to talk to people, your target customer, <laughs> in as many different environments as possible. Meaning, and you want to get as close to their environment as possible. You know, at my current company, we actually do a lot of phone interviews, but we also get out to where they shop because they're in a different frame of mind. That's so good. So that's number one. You know, just a couple of sort of, I would say, call these actionable tips for how to do this, though, because you also don't want to go in undirected or because you never want to just build for the last person you spoke with. So you do want to be disciplined about doing several things. The first is... Before you talk to anyone, literally write down what would change your actions. I mean, if you have a bunch of conversations that wouldn't change your actions and you've just got this undirected conversation <laughs> and what you want are like very explicit hypotheses, depending on how you know the answers come out, what would change your actions? Are you deciding on price? Are you deciding on whether to introduce a certain feature? Are you deciding on who your target audience is, who to build for, whatever it is, Figure out what's going to change based on your conversations. You got to identify who matters. So, you know, if someone doesn't fit your criteria, you don't talk to those people. You're not building, you're not trying to be all things to all people. You take your, the person you're building for and make sure you're speaking to them. And then the key is to really listen in a dispassionate way. And I know this sounds super obvious, Ian, but nine out of 10 people don't do it. So, because the thing you need to remember is that when people are speaking to you, it's human nature. They want to please you. They want to tell you you're doing a good job. They want to tell you they love your product. There's like this huge chasm between people who in focus groups say, I would buy this product, and then you ship it and getting out the checkbook actually happening. So you need to go in there as the market research department who could care less 
you know, what the person thinks of your product, who doesn't smile when they say good things or cringe when they say bad things. You know, it is your job to be their therapist, to nod knowingly, to extract what they're really thinking. And when you're out at your shot, you can celebrate or cry or whatever you want, but you are her therapist. <laughs> that's your that's your persona when you're, you know, listening deeply for what they're truly, really believing. And they should feel safe telling you how bad your product sucks. That's okay. That's your job. You know, it's really interesting. I, I had a customer success call last week with Salesforce. Shout out to Salesforce. Also part out the sponsors of this mm-hmm. podcast. So we love you. But we had a really good customer success call last week with them where they were just interviewing me about the product and like how we use it and like how our different people on our team use it and when they use it and all this sort of stuff. And I was just thinking, I was like, how many companies still don't do this right? Right. You know, you're sitting there watching Salesforce, the most, you know, successful B2B software company of all time, potentially doing like 16 billion in revenue, nailing the details like getting on with customers afterwards and just like figuring out and taking that feedback back. And you're just like, just showing that you care is so important. And I think that part of that is what you're talking about with writing down your hypothesis, which is you have to know what your persona is and what this person is before you go into the asking those questions. Because like you said, if you go into it saying, my thought is that this person is going to behave this way and they behave completely different, you have a data point of like, this is what kind of like, this is what we're thinking. But if you don't do that, you have no frame of reference and you're just kind of blindly listening. Like you said, the the most recent person is going to be the one you remember. And you'll learn a lot of nice to knows, not business changing insights. I, I love this idea of of where they are like physically where they are talking to them. The closer you can get to the environment in which they would interact with you you as a company, the more true the feedback will be. So for example, if you're testing packaging, let's say on a retail shelf or whatever, instead of looking at it in your office, go stick it on the shelf and walk by and see whether people are drawn to it. The closer you can get to where they'll transact, the more accurate and the more natural their feedback will be. What about like on the B2B side? What if, you know, you hear about like, you know, account-based marketing, which we, we talk about on this podcast, but B2C, you have like kind of like family-based marketing. Has anyone written an article on that? That'd be great. Like, you know, if you're making or if you're making a dinner decision and you have a group of friends, like they're all stakeholders or whatever, but on the B2B side with this and they're making their that decision a lot of times in a boardroom or in a meeting room with a bunch of stakeholders that are all sitting around a table saying, hey, thumbs up, thumbs down, should we buy this software or thumbs up, thumbs down, should we do this decision? How do you kind of hone in? What would you be your best advice to like, how do you hone in on that period of time when it's in a group setting like that? Well, what you want to do actually is get as close to the environment as possible, right? Like I just said. So if you're interviewing or if you want to learn more about these people, you know, it is so worth it, especially at the beginning, especially when you're like coming up to speed on the job, drive to their environment and try and get into their office if they will have you. <laughs> I mean, I've done this before. Yeah. Where I got in my car, went over there. The minute I saw the desk and the room and the office and the colleagues, my whole mind shifted as to what world they were in because they can physically start to show you stuff. Yeah. And of course, this isn't scalable f- 
anyway, you start by doing unscalable things, but for consumer insight, but if it is B2B, anyway, do 10 of those <laughs> where you drive to them because the normal lifetime value of a B2B customer can be so high, it is absolutely worth your time. So yeah, we talk about mar- marketing ride-alongs, like have someone from your team go with the salespeople. And, and you know, you say to them, okay, if you can't bring me to your meeting, <laughs> walk me through it. Walk me through who's in the room, what their roles are, what the objections are, and then be dispassionate when you listen. And for heaven's sakes, don't try to problem solve because the minute they say, well, here's my problem with your product and you try to solve it, you've already left your persona as the market research department. But it's really tempting (laughs) to want to do that. Okay, that was part one. Be on the lookout for part two. We have a ton more stuff that we're going to get into, including how a CMO turns into a CEO, how to create a culture within your marketing organization, and marketing the future and the role of the CMO as we go into 2019. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes, and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, The messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.